Welcome. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. I'm Gabrielle. I'm Nick, and we're thieves. Well, not exactly thieves, but beginning in 1981, we called ourselves Thieves Theater. But we didn't just do theater. We did conceptual guerrilla art projects, or what we called para-theater. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Which means we like putting sticks in anthills and watching the ants scurry and readjust to their new reality, their new status quo. So The Hill by Thieves Theater, which of course is the title of the podcast, but so far we've mostly told you about the Thieves Theater part of it, except for the first episode, and now we want to dive headlong into The Hill, which is a project that was a defining point in time for us both personally and creatively. Yeah, we'll basically be going chronologically following Gabrielle's uh, daily journal. But we're hoping not just to uh, chronicle the things that happened to us, but also the emotional and psychic journey that uh, we took during those two and a half years. As we said before, you know, it was a traumatic experience. And now 30 years later, though, we've unearthed it largely because it's a piece of New York City history that we think needs to be told. There are also a lot of people involved whose stories need to be told. Yes, Uh, and we're the only ones who can tell those stories. And for that reason alone, it's important. Right. So uh, we also want to figure out in the telling of it how it moved from something light and relatively carefree and Mm -hmm. idealistic and fun to and well-intended, right? To, to something dark and guilt-ridden and violent and dangerous. Yeah, and it happened almost imperceptibly. It's like that boiling frog syndrome, that if you jump into boiling hot water, you're going to jump right back out. But if you sit inside regular water and it gradually gets hot, hotter and hotter, you're not knowing that it's happening yeah. to you. And that is what was confusing to us in retrospect, wondering why we were there so long, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. Um, So to continue that metaphor, when we first got to the hill, the temperature was not boiling over, right? With uh, violence and police corruption and uh, conspiracies and nastiness. And it was more like a, a pleasurable, lukewarm bath. (laughs) I'll be at a very weird community bath, but maybe I should drop that metaphor. Yeah, well, because there was no bath up on the hill or or no toilet, no shower. I mean, nothing like that. Yes, which gets me to the most often asked question then and now. I just got it again recently. Where did you go to the bathroom? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's people are going to ask that if they really. Yeah, if they try to figure out how they would live up there, you know, where's the toilet? I mean, it's something you have to use every day. So, you True. know, it's a, it, it's a legitimate question. It's just a little weird. Of all the things you can ask, the top of mind is, where did you go to the bathroom? <laughs> so, yeah, there was no bathroom, but I do remember Ali. Ali used to take a shower down at the hydrant every morning. It was hilarious. <laughs> yes, much to everybody's chagrin. Well, it was funny, too. But, I mean, nobody liked him standing in his underwear down there, you know, you're singing in a shower. Singing yeah, right, in right, the rain. right, 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 right. <laughs> As cars are going by and stuff. Calling but, attention to himself right, and being exactly. really pissed people off. But I think that mostly also had to do with the fact that Ali was 
the keeper of the wrench, right? There was there was one fire department issue wrench that opened the hydrant and somebody had to keep it because if you just leave it lying around, it's going to disappear. So somehow Ali became the keeper of the wrench, meaning he had water anytime he wanted it. But when somebody else wanted water or needed water and they couldn't find Ali, they were mumbling and grumbling like crazy, mm-hmm. right? And Ali was a very likable guy. Uh, everybody liked him, but they were just constantly pissed off at him, right? Where's the yeah. wrench? Where's well, Ali? Well, <laughs> he was a little different set apart from everybody else, too. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I think he was from uh, Yemen. Yemen, yes. Yemen, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, and uh, he was different. He, first of all, um, he was maybe 30, maybe mid-30s, uh, young, energetic, didn't have that worn down by life look at all mm-hmm. uh he was you know athletic and looked like uh he was a man with a mission and n- not inured to the life as they called it right yeah i don't think he was even a, a thief or criminal oh, yeah. or well he, yeah he, he turned into one um yeah. and that was the tragic downfall of ali yeah, but I mean, he didn't really work with anybody up there. He no, wasn't no, one no. The, he, 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 he didn't. Must, yeah, he didn't work with the rest of the because thieves. the rest of the thieves worked together. Together, a lot. Uh, yeah. often. Yeah. yeah. No, he he was an outsider. But don't you remember he went to jail? He was gone for a while, and when he came back, what t- it turned out to be is that he played chicky, as they called it, right? Lookout on a breaking and entering job, and that became. He just spiraled downhill. But the biggest reason was because he wanted to go back to Yemen and prove to his parents that he was a success, that he made it in America, Mm. right? The classical sort of immigrant dream story is what he wanted to accomplish. But then he figured out there's a faster way than running a grocery store on Coney Island, Mm. which is to sell drugs. And Mm. that was the beginning and of the end of Ali in his own words, to his own admission. Yeah. I mean, you used to hear stories that I didn't hear. I think it was because you were doing the portraits of people. Yes. They'd sit inside the teepee and talk with you and stuff that uh, I didn't hear. And you didn't tell me at the time. So I I didn't really know a lot about that, about Ali. Well, that's the interesting thing about this Hill story is you have your whole own experience. I have my experience and I kept the journal. But a lot of what I have in the journal is what I heard from you. Right, right. For I mean, but yes, I had as a woman also. I had a much different relationship right. with everybody than you did. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and um, uh, I remember Ali telling me that, that he's telling me, even though you built the tent, he's saying he's asking me if we could build an Egyptian style tent out of um, canvas, mailbags. out of mailbags. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. you know, but everybody. Everybody wanted, after the teepee was up, everybody wanted to do something with their hut to make it more attractive, yes. or make it more interesting. They got inspired. Once that teepee right. went up, they were like, wow, what can I do? <laughs> right? right. And I went to the library and I got a book on tiny houses throughout the cultures and history or whatever. And uh, looking at different ways that maybe we could improve the huts. But <laughs> what was interesting is Ivan and I built a hut on the exact dimensions of... Uh, Thoreau's house at Walden's Pond because right. that was one of the tiny houses that was in that book, 
you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we figured out when you built it by those dimensions, right. how tiny it was. Yeah, how you got a, You got a whole new, you know, perspective on Thoreau and what he actually did yeah. there. He lived in a hut, basically. Yeah, and, he did, you know, his whole elaborate kind of thing, he built his own house. He built his own hut, basically. You know? <laughs> well, he did put an A-frame on it that you yeah, didn't, we Ruth. didn't put the A-frame <laughs> He didn't get that far. No, no. But, but yeah, that was very exciting. But any case, everybody, uh, you know, had all kinds of ideas and uh, ideals and excitement about the possibilities of on the hill, you know, turn it into a mail-bagged, idyllic encampment or something, right. you know. Yeah. That was at the beginning. That was at the beginning. Everybody got really excited. Um, and that's when things were still bright and optimistic. So before we get to the other people, uh, you know, we'll, uh, Ali will keep coming up. But before we get to more people, I just want to paint a little picture of what it was like physically on the hill. So if you stood at the center of the encampment uh, and you looked over to the Manhattan Bridge, there's arches to the Manhattan Bridge. And if you look through those arches behind them, you could see the World Trade Center, right. meaning back then the Twin Towers. And then if you looked, if you were on the Manhattan Bridge and you looked up, yeah. you could, you could you see, see the, freeze the freeze that was up there, which, yeah, the freeze, uh, you know, was right over kind of the teepee. And there there it was. The freeze depicted a sculpture of a buffalo hunt. In fact, the artist who was commissioned to sculpt that freeze, uh, Charles Rumsey, right. called it buffalo hunt. And that's exactly what it was. Yeah, right. If you go to the Manhattan Bridge right now and you look up, you will see a Native American Plains Indian <laughs> buffalo hunt. And Ch uh, Rumsey is also the one who sculpted the Dying Indian, which is, uh, I believe, still at the Brooklyn Museum. Yeah, we right? saw it there. Yeah. yeah, it was. it's in the yard right next to the parking lot. So you have this <laughs> dying Indian, dying horse next to all these cars, you know, which yeah. is sort of... I mean, the incredulity, anyway, of having, um, well, a Lakota teepee mm -hmm. um plains indians buffalo hunt all right there in the land of the lenape you know i mean yeah. i mean we were looking at native americans 125 years ago when rumsey was uh doing this sculpture and of course now we're 30 years ago a lot has changed about uh consciousness and whatever within individually and within culture right. about Native Americans. Uh, and we'll be talking about that throughout the uh, Yes, and it podcast. started with, in some ways, Hollywood and Dances with Wolves, well, which yeah, entirely yeah, coincidentally, right, came... Uh, came out time. on the same time that we put up the teepee, which right. back then we didn't know. There was no internet, you know? Right, right, right. But we'll be talking more about how that consciousness has changed. Has changed. Yeah. So uh, the Manhattan Bridge was modeled after Port Saint-Denis in Paris. And if you look at Port Saint-Denis and the Manhattan Bridge arch side by side, uh, it, you know, duh, right? They look almost exactly alike. And the, I guess the point was that uh, the Williamsburg Bridge was built six years earlier and was brutally functional and upset everybody. So they decided to build uh, the Manhattan Bridge in this sort of neoclassical, beautiful design, right? With, for whatever reason, a Plains Indian motif over right, the top of it. Right. And so if you look one way, you see the Twin Towers. And if you came right off the bridge and from, from the shantytown in the other direction, north, northwest, you'd see a billboard on the top. 
of a tall building. And that billboard said in fake Chinese-like letters, um, year of the loan, mm -hmm. right? Which is, you know, year of mortgages, right? So, you know... A mortgage uh, for Anchor Savings Bank. For, right. That's, of course, the irony that they were sitting right over a shanty town, you know, all this surrounding... And the World Trade Center. And the World and, Trade Center. you know, Center. it, it, it yeah. was like a visual indictment of capitalism's yeah. failures. Or, or, right, you know, a critique of critique, capitalism yeah. itself, right. Um, so there was a core group of people on the Hill um, that we want to introduce you to. Ali was one of them, because we want you to understand it was a very tight-knit community when we got there. In fact, it was so tight-knit that when Nick went there and hung out, which he did for about six weeks or so, he needed to get permission to put up the teepee. And he would come back and he would say to me, geez, it's like I'm dealing with a mayor and a community board. Yeah, and then I, I have to... You know. I can't imagine doing that now. I, I don't know how I did it. But of course, it was six weeks because you were working my job at that. Yes. Um, right. Nick worked... My day job, right. ...in a warehouse uh, that rented photorealistic backdrop drops. Uh, this was pre-digital, obviously, to the film and television industry. Uh, big, giant, you know, photos uh, that uh, they were headquartered in L.A. It was called Pacific Studios. In any case, there was a big warehouse, and all you really had to do was man the phone and be there for somebody to pick up and drop off these backdrops. So I was there uh, doing my drawings, my tarot deck drawings, one uh, card on each mailbag, and before that, or simultaneously, uh, building the teepee. And it brings me also to why we felt so destined and meant to be about this teepee. Because as I told you, Nick is very metaphysically oriented and attuned. And it all came together when there are 78, mail, uh, 78 cards in a tarot deck. And when I built the teepee, According to the book by Reginald and Gladys Laubin called The Indian Teepee, I took that as my guide. When I laid it all out and sewed those mailbags together to make a teepee, guess how many mailbags I used? <laughs> the tarot deck, right? Yes, 78. Yeah, yeah, 78, getting, it all came together. Yeah. yeah, you were getting a reading of the tarot deck by building the tarot, the, the tarot deck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. I, you know, I remember, I do remember the initial people that were there. And if, um, if I want to say there was a mayor, it was Eddie. You say that, and I remember it as being a, a combination Red and Billy Toyota. Well, they were, were all with. Jersey kids. They all came from the same place. But Eddie was the mayor because he was, he was the one in charge of the four brothers who were always up there too. Yes. So, you know, it was more Eddie and the brothers were in charge. So yeah. that's who I had to go through. Okay. You know? Well, of course you would know. Um, for, uh, and memory fails, you know. Um, and I didn't have that written down because, of course, I didn't start keeping the journal right. until we actually got in the teepee, yeah, right? Yeah. So the individuals on the Hill were kind of like a family. They fought like cats and dogs, <laughs> as family do, but they really looked out for each other. And they could be incredibly kind and mostly... When I remember the hill, I push aside the, the sorrow and the grief, and I think of how beautiful these 
characters were and mostly how funny oh my god they were so funny yeah. mm. it, 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 there it, there were things going on all the time we'll, we'll tell you individual little stories constantly where you know tears are rolling down your face because you can't believe how hilarious these people are I mean, the things that they say and they do and just who they are and how charming they are um remember the time uh, it started with early on, and Nick told me this story. I, I wasn't there. I was in the warehouse, right, drawing my tarot deck. Um, when you were sick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, early on, I got the flu or something, and I was bedridden. But I was at the hill, so I was sleeping in the teepee. <laughs> but everybody knew I was sick. And so they kept coming by the, the teepee. And, Nick, you there? You there, Nick? You Okay. I said, yeah, I'm asleep. I'm trying to sleep. I'm here. I'm good. You know, constantly waking me up, seeing if I was okay. I mean, you know. It was, <laughs> One after another, right? Yeah. But so, you know, you can't get mad at that. You can't get mad. But Nick then called me from the payphone, which was, you want to explain that a little bit, how communication worked back then? Oh, yeah, yeah. There was a payphone at the corner. And instead of putting in a quarter or whatever, you know, to call Gabrielle, uh, because you'd have, if you were going to talk longer, you'd have to put more money in, I think more than three minutes. What you would do is I would call her at the studio and uh, she'd get a collect call. And when the collect call, when you're supposed to leave your name, I'd leave the telephone number. So I go 212-555-5555. And, you know, she wouldn't accept the call. And then she'd call back whatever number. Instead, I'd number. hang up and call back the number. That whatever number. So it could be that usually that corner one. But, I mean, pagers were coming in around that time, too. And I think we got a pager fairly quickly, which was another way of communicating Yeah, it later. got complicated yeah. and, and moved very quickly, the technology. You had answering machines that, when somebody left a message, called your pager. And then you yeah, got a yeah. beeper, a beep right. on your pager. And then you had yeah. to call in. And it's like, oh, my God. Yeah, it was a way Hard to, to imagine keep, now, right? Yeah, it was a way to keep the day job good, too, when we both weren't there. Yeah, but, exactly. I mean, that yeah, that'll come out later. So, so things were changing all all around, and one of the things also uh, that changed and uh, was coming in was drugs. The people who were addicted on the Hill basically divided down into three different categories. There was the older generation that were sort of the remnants of what we used to call the Bowery bums. The Bowery back then was, for, for you youngins, <laughs> was Skid Row. Um, and there would be flop houses and bars one after another. And it's where... Well, it, not just youngins. Skid Row was pretty much history when we were there, too. I mean, you know, Louie and... Uh, yeah, there was one bar left, Al's. Yeah, right, right. And so it wasn't real thing. I mean, the mission was still there and everything like that, but it wasn't really the hangout. Exactly, which is kind of why I said the remnants of... Right. It, you're right, uh, to, to point that out. Um, and then the uh, somewhat older people, meaning late... Uh, uh, 30s, early 40s, whatever, in, in that age and range... And older, yeah. Um, ...were uh, heroin addicts. But then came the young generation at that time, which were the crack users. Crack cocaine was coming in yeah. um, big time uh, at, at, at that time. And so it didn't apply to everybody, but they took one thing or the other. In other words, the heroin addicts did not use crack. The crack addicts did not use heroin. And none of them really used alcohol except the alcoholics. And alcoholics were just with alcohol for the most part. Exactly. And the thieves on the hill, the people that stole were the heroin addicts because heroin compared to crack was expensive. They had 
I would say approximately a hundred dollar a day habit. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember that, you know, Tito and the others getting up each morning, you know, not having their fix and having to go out. There was a certain heroism in it. I mean, the, the, just the getting through the day again with this addiction and having to go out and thieve and find some way to make your, your Exactly. Habit. Imagine waking up every morning knowing you're facing having to figure out how to come up with at least a hundred bucks in order to not go insane right so if anybody thinks that addiction is not an illness and yes addiction has a lot to do with homelessness and these homeless encampments but it's an illness and if it ever started being treated as such a lot of these problems would be solved but yes i found those people very heroic also because a lot of them also hated themselves but they had no choice you know and every day they they got up and started each new day trying to figure this out but thievery took several forms uh the younger generation uh, you know the crack addicts tended to be mostly that they had cons yeah which was not theft theft. no no (laughs) they would be selling stuff that was fraudulent and ripping people off right which is sort of a victimless crime because definitely people thought they were buying you know the real thing yeah but the heroin addicts had to go they had to go out and outright steal yes so for instance when we first got there one of the very first stories that i heard was they stole a box of stuff off of a truck delivering goods on to some canal street store and when they opened the box it was tube tops right well you mean you heard it you must have heard it from from me yeah because i saw it i saw him selling it i know well that's what i'm (laughs) saying you know that uh a lot of the stuff especially early on i heard from you right so uh they were selling these tube tops which are uh you know women's uh elastic tops that just formed around the torso with no straps or whatever for those of you who don't know what tube tops are and given the time of year right in winter instead of selling them outright nobody's going to buy tube tops in the winter <laughs> they put them over their heads as if they were earmuffs so they they they'd stick it over their head the top of their head to come out the top the cross their forehead down their ears down to their neck so it looked like a a new fashion statement right or they something. scrunched them up basically right, <laughs> right. You know, I mean, uh, this also touches on uh, the police corruption that was going around there because the police from the 5th Precinct, which was Chinatown that surrounded the hill, they they said to everybody up there, if you steal, we don't care as long as you steal outside the precinct. If you steal something from from inside the precinct where it's our, (laughs) under our domain, then we're going to arrest you. But otherwise, we're going to leave you alone, um, which was fine. And yeah, they every, had a detente. Yeah, everybody way. agreed to that detente, so they went outside to steal, except the problem was that there was a parking lot right on top of the bridge there where all the cops from the precinct would park because it was only a couple blocks away. And also all the cars from the police that worked the court or had a pier in court which was a few more blocks away mm-hmm. would park there and every once in a while one of those cars could be broken into cop cars one of the cop cars would be broken into so whoever's on duty there would come to the hill and you know rub go through all the huts toss them and turn them and everything else bring people out and look through everything that was there 
you know. And then there was that one guy, right? Yeah, one guy would always, there was a guy who was always stealing purses. And what he was doing was stealing a purse on canal and then running through the hill and then up and into the subway. Because they started figuring out that the cops would immediately go to the hill. Right. And start accusing somebody there as though the people who were in the hill were the only thieves in Chinatown. Right. And I remember following the guy and I found out where he went down into the subway. I went down into the subway, found where he threw all the wallet shit on the ground there. And I told the police about it. And somehow they caught him. I don't know how. Maybe not from the information I gave him, but they did catch him. Yeah. And it, it ended. So. Yeah. So, um, not all of the people on the hill were thieves. Let's be clear. Most of them scavenged. Um, you know, they collected cans. Uh, some of them begged also. And that gets into a whole thing because there were a lot of people that up, up on the hill that hated beggars, right? So if you're going to live the life, you got to live yeah. the life, you know, getting later, talk about that more later on. Um, but yes, scavenged. Because... Um, landlords in Chinatown were constantly evicting people. This was at a time when uh, four, five, six years later down the line, it, uh, Hong Kong was going to go back to China, um, you know, Britain had announced. And so people were starting to leave Hong Kong. And coming, there was a huge influx of immigration. A lot of illegal immigration. Well. Because I remember seeing a friend's house, a basement in a friend on Christie Street. And he had gone down there to fix the electric. And down inside there, there were like six, eight, I don't know how many beds of people sleeping during the day there. In so, shifts. Yeah, so they'd be sleeping in shifts because this was like midday. So they were all sleeping there, ready to go to job at night, and somebody else to take the bed during the day. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it was really right. sad. Um, but people, uh, landlords would evict people and yeah, throw be, all their stuff out. Yeah. Right, there'd be stuff all over, working stuff, TVs, whatever, that were out there in in the trash. That There, there wasn't trash, it was somebody's eviction. Yes, belonging. so whatever the people on the hill couldn't sell or barter, they gave away because they were always looking out for each other. Hey, can somebody use this? Can somebody use that? Um, when we got there, almost everybody gave us a housewarming present, you know? Um, From the street, A yeah. beautiful Indian see-through scarf, um, a cooler with no lid on it. Here, <laughs> can you yeah, use this some as storage, no, some maybe? Things, yeah, some things, of course, didn't have any value. But, um, you know, one of the best scavengers was also one of the best thieves, which was Red. Yes. And Red, believe it or not, the thing that he stole mostly was uh, security cameras. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, he... So security cameras from vestibules, you know, from ATM vestibules. Right, like a In federal other words, crime. he'd steal the camera with a camera on him. In a bank. In a bank. Essentially, <laughs> right. But he was also a scavenger, a premier, the top of the line scavenger. And that's what, actually what he was most 
proud of because he'd go through these piles of trash, which was often just belongings that were thrown out. And he'd find things in Chinatown, like the red envelopes. And the red envelopes were gifts that were given. And um, there'd be money in there. And sometimes the money was still in there. So he loved to find the red envelopes. One time he found like over $1,000 inside a couch, in, stuffed inside the cushions where somebody had hidden their, their savings, you know, before they got invicted. Yeah, he was really proud of that score. Right. But, I mean, the thing that he, he said to me once with a smile, you know what I look for most, what I hope to find most? I says, I don't know. What, what like gold, jewelry? You know, what, I, don't, I don't know. What, what is it? He, and then he smiled, and he says, keys. And then, you know, I, I put two and two together. He says, yeah, keys means that a set of keys from the apartment that was evicted was thrown out, and these keys you could use later. So when a new tenant come in, you could go right into the building. Yeah. And so, you know. So Red was near and dear to my heart for many reasons. One, I guess I related to him in some ways more than the rest of them. He was this middle-class Jersey kid. He used to tell me stories about how his mother still kept clippings of when he was the high school basketball star, and some of these clippings would say the high school hasn't had a player as good as Red was in his day, and he was really proud of that. And, you know, he would come back, periodically all cleaned up and when he was would spend a few days with his family but he always found his way back to the hill because he was a heroin addict right so he was always he was shooting up but the other thing about red is he was really kind and soft-spoken but he also and i know this is going to sound incredibly incongruous but he also had a moral compass like you wouldn't believe. When somebody did something on the wrong, wrong on the hill, he would say, no, this isn't right. This needs to be corrected. This can't yeah, stand. Well, right, right. Red had a complicated relationship with himself, you know, because he can gone through a lot of different drug te- treatments where you, they have counseling and they bring you to attention to who you are and you know that you're lying to people that you're doing all these things the people you love the most how you how you disappoint yourself by doing all this with your addiction so he knew who he was very self-aware very self-aware and hated himself you know because yes the people that he loved the most he betrayed and he knew it again it's an illness it's evil so that is an introduction to Red. There were a couple more people uh, we want to introduce you to, but uh, one of them is, I want to talk about the Chinese man in the back. And that's literally how everybody referred to him, the Chinese man in the back. According to uh, Indian Jim and Louis, who will get into details about them. Yeah, they were the older alcoholics. Alcoholics. They had been there the longest besides the Chinese man in back because they used to come out of the Bowery and just sleep in cardboard. Yes, and they would see the Chinese man in a cardboard box across the street at the Greek Orthodox Church on the steps there. But that guy, the Chinese man, 
got tired of coming back from whenever he left that box, and the box would be in the garbage and would be gone. And then he'd have to find a new one. And eventually he figured, he looked across the street and he figured out that there's a better solution there. So he went in, the hill sloped down in the back. We all lived on the plateau part of it, which was by the entrance at the stoplight, but there was another entrance at the bottom with this gentle sloping down. And into that gentle slope, this Chinese man built his quote unquote hut. He built himself, dug himself into the hill. Right. (laughs) And it was big in there. And the reason we knew that is because he would put windows and uh, on, on, on top of the hill that he uh, and and roofing material that he held down with rocks. It was like a right, you right. Know, bunch of like, rocks, like sky windows, because they skylight. were skylight, <laughs> skylights. Right, exactly. I mean, you couldn't tell exactly how big it was because you'd have to go inside to see it, and to get inside, you'd have to crawl into one of the two holes or entrances he had there. So you know, nobody really went in there, but you could tell how where the uh, skylights were at, that you eventually would be able to stand up in there. So it must have been magnificent, right? Yeah, and he was the first one on the hill, right. except for Indian Jim and Louie, because Indian Jim and Louie were the second, you know. Right, yeah, they were always sleeping in the weeds up there when they'd come out of the exactly. Bowery. Exactly. But so they weren't actually living up there. I think right? that was um, six, seven years or, or longer before we got to the hill. So do you want to talk about the Chinese man in the back? You want to tell more about well, it? Because you have a whole relationship yeah. with him. Well, I don't want to say much about it now because uh, um, it's more what I know about him is more a story in my head <laughs> that came about while I was living up there. I basically started thinking about him more than maybe anybody else except Mr. Lee up there at the time was because the artist uh, Mel Chin had come up and he had told me about how he was working with geomancers. You know, he's a land artist. Uh, he was telling me how he was working with geomancers in Chinatown. And he, the geomancers, he said, the Chinese man at the hill was a geomancer. So, uh, I, I mean, he was somebody I talked to mostly with hand singles and gestures. You know, I didn't say anything to him because I didn't think he could speak English. But then I remember... Um, after Mr. Lee was yeah. killed, yeah, he came out and he said, you know, he said, he was my friend. We were soldiers together. Okay, you, you have to understand here that he had not said anything to speak of for two and a half years when, two years, yeah, um, when we were up there. And when Mr. Lee uh, was killed, was murdered, at one point we were all gathered just setting the scene, and this man came out and stood on top of his, not hot, home, and said that, he was my friend. We were soldiers together. It's still... Yeah, yeah. uh, Yeah. Uh, You know, you give your own meaning to when he says we were soldiers soldiers together. What were they soldiering and when or how? Um, so anyway, that is an introduction to Ali, Red, and the Chinese guy in the back, and a little bit to uh, Indian Jim and Louis, who we'll get to, among others, 
uh, the next time. Okay, thank you for listening to the Hill by Thieves Theater. If you like what you hear, don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell so that you know when our next episode is out. Check out our website at thievestheater.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TP on the Hill. That's T I P I on the Hill. Um, thank you thanks. so much. See you next time.